welcome to Welcome Dissonance, a podcast that tries to lean into the uncomfortable discussions because, as Diana Chapman Walsh wrote, that's often the time when a spark of true meaning can ignite. These are the circumstances that push us up against the painful growing edges that we can studiously protect until we find ourselves under duress. These are the moments in which we discover our differences and, through that discovery, learn more about who we actually are and how we are changing as individuals and as a community yearning for deeper connections. The conversation you're about to hear is a two-parter that tries to look at the sins of the past of music education and what we can do about it. Without further ado, here's episode one of Welcome Dissonance. So thank you all for being willing to do this for me. It's a, my professor didn't want to read any more papers way of handling some final thoughts. The thing that we're supposed to be able to solve in under a half an hour is all of the errors of the past of music education and then talking about um, how to kind of implement changes for the future that we would like to see or what, you know, could possibly happen if we don't implement any sorts of changes. Totally doable. Right. Yeah, we can totally minutes, solve education because, um, in half an hour. You know, like Tangle, the Tanglewood 2, there's also a Tanglewood 1, but Tanglewood 2 is like a 600 page book that they tried to do this in a three-week convention yeah 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 so if we don't 100 percent solve education in half an hour i i think i will probably still be okay grade wise so if we could let's just like start by talking about you know who we are what our education background is and then what we're doing now i'm going to go in grid order of how you are on my screen so andrew you're up are these intros is that what we're yes okay I'm Andrew Skinner. I am a music teacher and have been for eight years. I've been basically doing the same job for eight years, chorus and general music. And I am teaching in my third school. Started teaching in Massachusetts and then moved to Connecticut. And I'm not a master. I'm just a bachelor. So, <laughs> but I think I've experienced some pretty uh, interesting things in my short career so far. Hello, uh, Katie Ayatesta, also going into year nine. Um, I have been in the same school the whole time doing a variety of things. Um, Started out as sixth grade only, but chorus overload or the extras, if you will, and uh, band. And uh, as my job has changed, I now do fourth, fifth, and sixth grade band in Needham, uh, one elementary school, and then our sixth grade only building. So, oh, I went to Gordon for undergrad and my master's degree as well. All right. Uh, So I did my bachelor's at Montclair State in um, music ed. And then last summer, just finished my master's in ed at uh, Loyola University in in their Kodai program. I'm going into my 10th year of teaching in the same school. I teach kindergarten through eighth grade general and chorus and also direct an elementary and middle school musical. So all the things all the things i'm rachel smith i'm new jersey born and bred um i went to the college of new jersey for undergrad music education um i'll be going into wow my 10th year of teaching this year (laughs) um i spent one year my first year out i actually i taught uh in honduras and there i was just second grade like a general classroom teacher but also taught k through 12 music there um, and then ever since then, I've been teaching back in New Jersey, and I do K to five general plus chorus and band. And I also uh, I'm a woodwind tech for marching bands here and there. 
I'm glad you brought that up because I feel like all five of us probably had had rich lives outside of teaching um, at school before nobody was allowed to go outside anymore. If we want to just like go around one more time and say like what our extra music or extra school musical involvement is starting back up with Andrew. Um, extra, extra school musical involvement. Yeah. That- so um, maybe like choirs, orchestras, anything you're involved in outside of school. I've been doing a lot of uh, music directing for musicals. That's right. Um, <laughs> And I also um, direct uh, a local um, children's choir outside of school as well. Oh, way cool. Very cool. Katie? Um, Well, I used to, no longer, but was the uh, orchestra director at Grace uh, Chapel in Lexington. Um, We had a full, like, full orchestra, like, twice a month, which was pretty awesome. Um, And then also former, so, you know, let these things go as life changes, but uh, former marching band director um, at Needham for their high school as well. Very cool. Garou? Mentioned, both the musicals I direct at my school are typically after school. Our middle school one was canceled the day before we were supposed to open, which I'm sure everyone had some sort of feeling with that. Uh, and then a couple years ago, I started a before school, like auditioned advanced course for my seventh and eighth graders. Um, yeah, no, it's it's cute. It's like a very, I teach in a super small school. So it was like 10 kids, <laughs> but they're very cute. And um, I think anytime you can provide an opportunity beyond what was already there, like don't undersell it by being like, it's small. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, well, it was it was important because like even, it was the, the small group of kids that like were getting annoyed with the bigger middle school chorus. Like as more kids were joining the regular chorus because of their friends or whatever, I had a group of kids that were like, they wanted the harder music. They wanted like all of these like little things. So I was like, all right, well, you could do it before school on Monday mornings if you really want to. And they're like, yeah, so. Getting seventh and eighth graders to come in early. Like that that's huge. You did a thing there. Yeah, it's a thing. <laughs> Rachel Smith. Uh, I'm a flute player and so I have a private studio where I teach a bunch of private students. And I also regularly play with the Philadelphia Wind Symphony and also uh, South Jersey Pops Orchestra, where I know Emma, where we're both assistant conductors as well. Thanks for throwing me that bone at the end real quick. Okay. <laughs> I mean, <yeah. laughs> um, so I guess uh, one way to possibly talk about the sins of the past is to kind of reflect on our own personal experiences. And rather than go in a circle one more time, because that formula already feels old. Does anybody want to volunteer and kind of talk about what their upbringing was like inside of school, outside of school, however you want to approach it, however you view your cultivation thus far? What made you like the musician you are now? And it might be revealing if we all wind up talking about things that were experiences that were largely outside of school, like that might be something to consider. So no rules in talking about what your musical upbringing was like. I'll go. So my in-school musical upbringing probably through elementary school was not very good I have to say I had like the stereotypical old lady music teacher who would come in on a cart pushing the textbooks and would pass out the textbooks and we would sing like she popped a little cd player and we'd sing along with the songs and like that was it you sat in the desk and you sang the songs, which is very much not my style like you know we're up and we're moving I'm sure all you guys are kind of like the same as me um so I feel like if I had just had that, it probably would not be very great. I also had a band teacher who was mean, like very mean and discouraging, even though like obviously I was into it. Um, so I feel like at least through elementary school, my love of music probably came more from home. My dad, he's not a professional musician, but he does a lot of music. And so he was always like playing guitar. We were singing 
and he encouraged me to like take piano lessons and things like that. So um, once I got older into middle school and high school, then there were a lot more engaging things because there were just a lot more opportunities. But I feel like in elementary school, it was kind of boring and like nobody, like their favorite special, like nobody liked music because it just wasn't that fun. And I feel like one of my goals now is to make sure that's not the way that it is in my school and to have it be really fun and engaging and have the kids excited about it. I can go next. So fun fact, I, uh, my elementary music upbringing is in the district that Emma now teaches in, I believe. Uh, So that was my elementary school. Um, And it was similar, like I remember first, second grade, it was definitely on the cart. Um, I I loved him, but we didn't get to do that much because we were in our desks. Um, And then we, so there were three different elementary general teachers in the district that I had, and they were all very different, um, but a lot of singing out of a book or to CD. But in one of, one of them, there was like a handbell choir, which was cool. So I did that during recess. I basically did anything during recess, so I didn't have to go out to recess. So I did <laughs> handbell choir. I did student government, I, you know, all those little clubs during recess. But it was definitely like not necessarily exciting. Uh, I took piano lessons outside of school for a short time. Uh, I did dance. And then I would say probably high school was where I decided to like really get into it. I did the play and the chorus teacher was awesome. I did um, two weeks of color guard (laughs) 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 and then decided the marching band life was not for me. But I, you know, uh, we sang a lot in my house just to the radio. My dad loved like do up. So we would split up all the parts. Uh, which I didn't realize at the time was like not a normal thing. Like not everybody does that. <laughs> like getting older, I was like, oh, nobody does this at home. Okay, it's just me. Um, but it was cool because it made me a better listener because like we would take different parts of the doo-wop group. Mine was opposite in some ways. Like my middle school experience wasn't great. Uh, my elementary music experience, we had a keyboard lab uh, in our school and Mr. Hui, who was amazing and a very rotund man, um, would like sing songs and uh, read books at the same time. But he was an insane piano player. So he would just like improv and read books as he would do it. So it was like very entertaining. He also like played to my vanity, if you will, and let me like perform in class and other things like that because I was taking piano outside of school. Middle school, kind of lame. You only had the choice of band or the like other fun classes that were um, happening and I chose band. But I grew up in a musical household. Uh, My father was a a music administrator in Bridgewater Raritan in New Jersey. My mom was a elementary band director in the New Providence Public Schools. So it was kind of expected um, and or an unspoken requirement in our household that like you will play piano until the day you graduate high school and you will learn to like it. And also like you should participate in music because it's good for your soul. You know, if it doesn't bring you joy, we'll find you something else. But my, a lot of those expectations were not school-based. Like even though I was participating in school, like it was understood that you would be a part of these things. Mind you, I had zero intention of going into music education. I applied to undergrad and set up my entire graduation plan of high school um, to go into pre-med. Like all of the AP classes, all of the science labs, everything was set and ready to go. I knew where I wanted to be. I knew who I wanted to intern with in Boston. I had it all set. My aunt gave me a beautiful trumpet as a graduation gift and I thought she was very 
poor choice of a graduation president and a waste of money. Um, out of guilt, I auditioned for the wind ensemble at Gordon, got a pretty high seat in the ensemble and tried to think of every way to get out of it because uh, I didn't want to do it. I was finally free from this music thing that I always had to do. Then they announced we were going to Italy and I changed my mind and decided I could stick it out for a year just to go to Italy. Um, and by the end of that year, life stuff had happened. My mom was sick. My mom had passed away and I realized I hated science even though I had set myself up. Um, well, not hated it, but I didn't I didn't enjoy it. Um, and the only two things that I would joyfully tell people about were my softball teammates and wind ensemble. And my father being the man that he is, he, uh, we had a six hour trip, we were trapped in the car and uh, he basically told me that he would support whatever choice I made, but I'm going to be miserable if I continue doing what I'm doing and I should consider picking something that brings me joy. So I went back to the music department, said I'm switching my degree and uh, Dr. Rocks, good old Dr. Rocks, basically told me in his office, like we were just waiting for you to figure it out. Uh, I was gonna give you another couple of months before I pulled you aside. So so in some ways, I was always involved in music. At the same time as an educator, I feel like a very late bloomer because, you know, there weren't the private lessons and my audition wasn't the same. And I joined Emma's class and other, like I was in three classes, if you will, graduating classes at the same time, trying to get all of my coursework done. So my undergrad felt very jumbled, but luckily I had the home life that I had that I kind of understood what was being talked about, <laughs> even though it wasn't like something I had studied prior to college. I actually switched midway. I didn't start out as music mm -hmm. either. I started out as math, mainly because I didn't get in to the music program. I auditioned and I didn't have private lessons or anything and my audition was terrible. And <laughs> by the time I got home from the audition, I had an email saying I didn't get in. So, um, but I had a tuition scholarship to Montclair. So my parents were like, figure something else out because that's where you're going. <laughs> and I was like, okay. So I was like, I guess I like math. And then I joined like the chorus on campus and then I joined the music for sorority, whatever. And then it was like, they were like, why are you a mu music major? I'm like, cause I didn't get in. They're like, so re-audition. I'm like, oh, that's so weird. And then finally I was like, I mean, I guess I could. Uh, so I changed into music at my junior year of college. Okay. So well, I don't think I, I knew that, right? Yeah, so I tried to do a five year program in three and a half years. So it was like, I can't be in college for seven years. So similar to you, Katie, I was in, you know, my ed classes, I was on track with the people that were my year, but the music classes, I was with, you know, freshmen when I was a junior and it was, it was insane. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I wasn't an ed major either. I wasn't a music major. I was undeclared though, because I was just, I don't know. I don't know what, I luckily I like made it to college just because I like didn't know what I was doing. I was bouncing around. So I went and undeclared and then same thing. I like auditioned and I got seated pretty high. And in my audition, they started, they asked me what my major was. And I was like, oh, I don't know, I'm undeclared, like figuring it out. And they like in my audition started trying to talk me into it. And I was like, oh, like, give me a minute. Like, oh. <laughs> and then, I mean, it, I only took like one semester to figure it out to buy the second semester. But even that was enough to like knock me off course. And I was in classes with all these different people. But luckily, like I had some AP credits and things. So I still graduated on time. There are several themes emerging, um, <laughs> one of which is that I... I thought I was going to be a CPA. The only reason I went into the music program was because they gave me extra money if I did. Um, and I went in, if I'm like Katie and Andrew, I'm sure you remember Keith Gruen. I remember telling him, like asking him like what it would be like to try to double. And he just laughed in my face. He's like, no, you're not doubling. There's no doubling. Um, it's just this. Andrew, I want to see if you round out this other 
theme that is absolutely I think you are. I think I know enough about your your background to know what you're about to say, but tell us about your upbringing, please. I did um, most of my music um, learning in church. I learned how to read music, I think, probably better in church than at school. I have no, I have no memory of ever being in a general music class. Um, in elementary school, I have memories of being in like chorus, which I think may have been through that time block, but I did um, in third grade. Well, in second grade, I was taking piano lessons with my dad and that was bad news bears. So as soon as third grade came around and I could start strings at school, I thought this is my way out. So I was trying to avoid piano lessons with my dad by starting violin. And then I, in fourth grade, you could start band and I wanted to switch um, to trumpet. And then I did that for until, um, like eighth grade and I got bored and I switched to horn. I think my, my music teachers were both good enough and bad enough to make me want to be a music teacher. Um, and I didn't switch majors. Okay. Um, I think, you know, I had a really good middle school band teacher and elementary school band teacher, and I had really bad high school music teachers. I mean, the, the program and infrastructure was very good in my district growing up, um, but there are always bad teachers who manage to stick around and wreak havoc. Um, but luckily, if you don't have, if, if you have good infrastructure, they don't wreak havoc as easily as they could otherwise. But, um, uh, but I definitely learned how to sing and sight sing and read music really well at church doing handbells and uh, singing in choir. Yeah, that's one of the themes that I that I picked up on that I'm sure you guys did too. Um, none of us were like, none of us said, well, let's go do the other way. Every one of us said our love of music came from either home or elsewhere. Um, Andrew, I, I don't want to speak for you, but I assume that if you're anything like me and Katie, that like your church life and your home life were sort of like intertwined because the, the, the people from home are who are bringing you to church. Um, so those two things were kind of married. Yeah, all of our, like Rachel Smith, love of music came from home. Grow, music at home, doo-wop, which is hilarious. I love oh that God. you have that experience. Um, <laughs> Katie, you grew up in a musical household. I very much grew up in a musical household. Um, and if it wasn't my musical household, it was the musical household where my parents were giving lessons outside of somebody else's household. Um, and yeah, Andrew, like uh, learning more at home and at church than you did at school. The fact that you don't even remember like a general music class at all. Like it's possible that you had one and just it possible. didn't have an effect on you. I oh, have one memory actually, sorry. I have one memory um, of being in a music class, um, but it's a bad memory. Oh. And it was Mr. Anderson who is, who is now still, he is the high school band director, but he was an elementary music teacher at the time. I think and this must've been like legit. Years later, yeah. This must've been kindergarten or first grade. And I just moved from California. So I was new to the school and they were singing they were singing, I, I think it was Up on a Housetop, Up on the Housetop, that Christmas, whatever it is. I don't Up on the Housetop. Yeah, Up on the Housetop. And I didn't know it. And my music teacher thought I was being like an asshole. <laughs> and he kept me after class because I wasn't singing because I didn't know the song. And he kept me after class and said, are you trying to tell me that you don't know this song? So that actually is my one memory of general music class in elementary school. That's fascinating. Um, Katie, I want to give you a chance to say what you wanted to say, but that's actually a fabulous segue into something like that I was hoping would come up. So, Katie. You're welcome. We, I remember in fifth grade, 
they were testing out new standardized tests and we were one of the guinea pig classes and they were going to try to do one in music and my parents were like very it was like a an arts one that they had put out there and i can you know my parents came home and again me only child i'm a little bit of a know-it-all um you know so i come home and my parents are like yeah just a little uh my parent i come home and my parents are like so how was the test like how what did you think like because they were both teaching so they knew this thing was happening across the state and i looked at them and i was like i think i got everything right like it really wasn't a hard test but i remember directly saying to them none of the information that i put down on that test i learned in school so I said, I don't know how my uh, classmates did. Like I knew what genre was and I knew what these different like aspects of art were. We were talking about impressionism and piano um, and you know, like how this matched, you know, Chopin matched up with artwork and like time period. And like, I knew all of these answers like because of my private piano teacher and my parents and like dinner conversations. But I was like, I have no idea how my friends did. Like, and I remember distinctly having that conversation at the dinner table with my parents. <laughs> so Okay, so that that's like related to something else I was hoping would come up. Um, so, Katie, your statement like begs the question, which I have recently determined like no one uses right. So now I'm questioning whether I should be saying begs the question. But um, it makes me want to ask. It begs me to ask. Um, why is the home experience that kids are having, that they're loving, that they're learning from, that they're retaining, that they're carrying into their adulthood, why isn't that anything like what? music is at school like why are those things so dramatically different and andrew you said something that that rachel brought to the table like before we before we started this conversation today about why that teacher was so unwilling to recognize that your home life your experience what you grew up with what your uh, experience in california didn't match the culture of his classroom like how on earth could you not know this how are like how dare you be different in your understanding that you brought this far as a 10-year-old or a 7-year-old or however you old were at the time. Rachel, can you speak a little bit to the, the concern that you brought to me before? I mean, unless you're like, hell no, don't make me talk about this. Can you bring a little bit of what you were talking about like, in emails before this conversation started today? Well, I was just saying how I feel like our classrooms you know, our society has changed so much in the past couple years for the better with Black Lives Matter and being so much more aware of racism and diversity and like everything else and, you know, like feminism and everything. And I feel like our education isn't keeping up with that and we're not moving fast enough. And I've gotten to a lot of conversations with my colleagues talking about like, I don't know if you guys follow Facebook groups, but a few of the ones that I've been in, like uh, Decolonizing the Music Room and uh, Firebend Group even, They've talked about how a lot of the music that is used in music textbooks and like the music that we've learned we should be using in classrooms is really not appropriate anymore. Um, like a lot of it has roots either in like minstrel songs or is just like super racist for various reasons that we never knew. Like just an example that pops into my mind is when I was student, not student, student teaching, but when I was doing like practicum, I was in a class and they did the song Jump Jim Joe. I don't know if you guys know it. It's like the simple little movement song. And I was like, wow, this is so great. Like they're moving around. It's awesome. And my first couple of years of teaching, I used it because I was like, what well, this is cute little song. And it's like, get some singing and they're moving. It's the partner song. Like it was, it was perfect. Um, and then it turns out that it was a minstrel song and that it was racist. And I was like horrified because this wasn't even a song that I discovered on my own. It was a song that I had learned about in school and I had seen in use in a school during my practicum with a teacher 
who I'm sure like had the best intentions and I'm not knocking her, but I'm just saying there's like, I feel like we have so much learning to do and it's almost overwhelming. I know that Firebend just came out with the new book, um, the name escapes me, but I ordered it for next year. <laughs> yeah, I haven't gotten it yet because I, you know, orders take forever. But I'm really looking forward to like actually having a resource for this because I feel like just discovering all the things that I shouldn't do is really important. But having the resources, like either professional development or just even books, to understand like it's a new era. It's 2020, and it we're still teaching. Like it's I don't even know what time period, but it's not yeah. up to date. I actually have a document through uh, my grad program, the director of it made, and it's a, it's like a whole document with sources. Oh, that was the doorbell. Give me one second. Um, while she's at the door, I would like to confess a sin as well. Um, I, we learned, I want to say, I mean, like John Kanaka is in um, the fire oven repertoire, but uh, it's also something like, because, because Gordon is just like heart light. Um, I learned it there as well. And I used it with like a first or second grade class, like in a, in an informants, like they performed, they did, they played the game in front of their parents. And then later when I discovered like the background to that song, realized I had like, I had a girl whose father was Hawaiian and I was like, well, I messed that up. Like, I hope that they don't hate me now. Um, Sorry, Rachel, you, what were you saying before the doorbell oh, rang? So anyway, so it's a whole, it's all about um, songs with a questionable past. And so it kind of is like an all-encompassing document of all of like songs like that, why they're problematic. And um, it's sourced with like the, the background of them. So, I mean, I'm happy to share it. With I enjoy, like I was looking on Facebook. There was one very similar that was happening. And again, like the more the merrier. I, I posted a unpopular opinion um kind of underneath one of these and I like set it up front I was like some of the lists though that are circling around especially the ones with alternatives we have to be careful with what we're choosing to replace it with like there are so many tunes out there that are able to teach quarter quarter eighth eighth quarter that yes Jimalong Josie needs to go like there it's like right. an unnecessary tune but when we start adding songs like Jingle Bells because it was used in a minstrel show once, I think that we need to be careful with eliminating all of the songs that were used from a questionable past in order to, like, delete the mistakes of our white ancestors versus taking the time to teach it and taking the time to explain why this song was used or like how it would have been inappropriate to use it in way X or Y. And I'm not saying that we need to take the time on every song. There are so many tunes out there that we need to pick and choose what we use. Mm -hmm. um, but I also think that like, I just said, like we have to be wary with what we're cutting and why we're cutting. Um, because again, Mahler, not the greatest person in the whole wide, you know, in terms of his beliefs, but we're not cutting his symphonies there's not text included in a lot of Mahler's work. So we have to be like, can you separate the artist from the song? And the modern example is like R. Kelly. Like I cannot separate what R. Kelly did from the music that he did. So like, I'm never gonna do I Believe I Can Fly again because he was literally talking about his discretions in his music. So I'm not dealing with that with kids. Whereas like, other songs with questionable past, I think, again, I, I just think there's this, like, there needs to be a debate of why we're not using it, what we're choosing to use as a teaching tool versus just eliminating it from the repertoire. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, no, I don't sure. think there has to be a balance. I, I wish there'd be more discussion about it, though. I mean, I, it seems like we're all basically on the same page. But I know, like, when I brought things up to colleagues, like, once we were talking about, I was saying how I don't use eeny, meeny, miny, mo anymore, because I don't know if you guys are aware of that one. <laughs> Emma, you look like you know that one. Never yeah, again. No, right, no. Which, and I didn't know. So now I, I do akabaka instead, because it's, like, the same kind of thing. Um, but I was talking with a colleague and saying how, like, oh, you know, it didn't used to be catch a tiger by the toe. It was the N-word, and that's, like, it's not okay to be having kids still doing this. And he's like, well, why? It's, it's, they changed the word. It's, it doesn't mean that anymore. I'm like, yeah, but the history, and I mean, you can guess how the conversation went. I won't recount the whole thing. But we just kind of went in this circle where people think that if you're not actively using racist words, that the history of a song doesn't matter at all. And I think there does have to be a line. I also think there's a difference between, it sounds like we're all mostly elementary, um, you know, what you're teaching in kindergarten versus what you're teaching to fifth grade. With the older grades, I feel like you can get more into the history of a song and kind of explain it more. Whereas with kindergarten, like, I mean, maybe you guys are better than I am, but like, I'm not sitting down really and explaining songs to them. We're just learning no. things. So I just have to like, pick out the things that I know that are going to be appropriate for them to be singing. No, I think the age has such a big part of it. You're right. Like, have a, if they're old enough to have a discussion about it, I think I would be more likely to like, use a song that maybe is questionable to have that discussion versus like, you know what, we're just not going to do that in kindergarten because they don't, un they can't understand it yet. And we're not going to take the time to do that because it's not as important in kindergarten to talk about that specific part of music. So yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right with that. This is a podcast or this is going to be a audio recording. Um, and so our, our faces don't necessarily matter, but um, I do want to point out that Andrew had, you had like your telltale smirk on for some of what was going on there. Um, <laughs> is there anything, like, can you throw in your two cents about anything that we just said? Um, I think that... You don't have to hedge if you don't want to. No, I, I don't, I don't subscribe to um, like theoretical harm that could be done to someone by, you know, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. I didn't know that it was supposedly had some, you know, history with uh, racist remarks um, until just now. And I mean, if someone doesn't know, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't, I don't think about these things. I mean, I'm in middle school and I don't, I don't touch any of this stuff. I find the best repertoire I possibly can, the best art I possibly can. I teach my kids. And um, so I don't really come across a lot of these, these things um, in my teaching, but I don't know. No, that's an excellent, thank you. I'm glad I pressed you then because I think you're right that we should not be demonizing people who are in, not intentionally, it's not as if you did know that and you were purposefully going around trying to like hurt the feelings of people. I think it's, and I think it goes back to what Rachel was saying about having more discussions about it because, because you're right. Like it, it, no one can really fault you for doing something you honestly didn't know was a problem. Um, it's what you do with, with your actions after you've learned something. And so, yeah, no, I think, I think you're right. And I think we, I think when we were talking about having a balance, that that's something to consider. Uh, but I also wanted, oh gosh, somebody said something that I really wanted to tag on to. Um, oh, it was changing individual words. It was um, when uh, Smith, when you said, well, the, the, the teacher was like, yeah, but we changed it. So it's not, it's not a problem anymore. Um, this also came up this past, uh, in February at the, at the NJMEA conference where I lost all the skin on both my knees and then no one ever talked to each other ever again because uh, COVID happened. Um, 
Oh my gosh, I still have incredible scars. You should see my knees. We had to um, buy you new leggings. I had to buy new leggings at the H&M and then change in the public bathroom, which I'm putting on a public recording. Why am I doing this? Um, <laughs> the point is um, for things like gender and, and where we're, we're changing words, does anybody else have any feelings on that? On And I think this goes back to balance again, but I'm interested to hear what you guys have to say. What What is your feeling on that? Like, saving when is it appropriate to save the repertoire and change the language and when is it like we don't really need this repertoire at all i feel like it depends on the repertoire um you since you brought up njmea i was thinking about how excited we were that there was a session that was about lgbtq inclusivity which was the first time that i've been going to it like basically every year since i've been teaching it's the first time that i've ever seen that kind of panel even offered um, and I know that Emma and I were both like super excited to actually see that and to go to it. And totally the person who's presenting some really interesting points. I feel like when you're talking about, how do I say it? Like, I feel like when you can change something to make people feel more included, even if you don't know which student it is that you're including, you know, if there's a genderqueer student and instead of saying, okay, boys and girls, and you can say, okay, everybody, like that's, that's a big difference. And even if you don't know what kid you're impacting, it still makes a difference. And I mean, I'm, I slip up, I'm not perfect, but I feel like just kind of striving to, to try to do that. But the other thing I was thinking was, I'm totally not trying to demonize anyone who does other things. And the more that I think about it, all the, I guess, progressive things that I've been implementing, whether it's like gender inclusivity or being more aware of racist histories and things, I've done that all on my own, just like looking on Facebook or like other resources and things. like never has my school given me any resource or professional development or anything else that said, hey, you should be aware of this. And we shouldn't put that on teachers to have to reach outside of their professional lives to be doing this kind of thing. So it's, yeah, I don't know, maybe that's something that needs to be changed in the educational system to make people more aware of it. Yeah, I mean, we've had this, in the past three years, that's actually been a huge part of our building PD has all been around helping this out. We just had a very large I teach in a very wealthy white uh, community, right? It's right outside of Boston. Um, and so there was a lot of pushback. We have a METCO population. Um, so this is like students that live in Boston, mostly students of color. Um, and it was, the program was originally created to like provide these students an opportunity in a, in a school that was not in the city. And also it was to help these other districts have diversity and other things. And like, so it was supposed to be a two-way street, but like, it's not. Um, and so, but it's been very interesting that like, that was some of the pushback from our Metco students. Like our kids were saying, like, we're not feeling included. We are in a cohort. We feel excluded from X, Y, and Z. And so like the town listened and like worked really hard. And so, but having that PD has made life more comfortable. Um, and so like, in some ways, I like, I wish everybody could have a PD that we had in the past couple of years, because when the Black Lives Matter thing happened, but we were in remote learning, the conversations were difficult, but they weren't scary because we had practiced this. Like in professional development meetings, we had practiced these conversations of how we're preventing these, this negative language and changing words. And this year we had switched to the LGBTQ, like taking the same principles, but like now how do we include that community? So it is very helpful when your school provides it. So like ask for it. We that's just kept asking and huge. asking and asking. Yeah, yeah that's um, huge. Yeah, yeah. We, um, we 
like not funny. like we've been talking uh, in our grad program right now about how to like the the empowerment that comes from transformational leadership enough that you can advocate for your own needs as professionals. But the fact that your PD came from the students that the mm-hmm. students felt empowered enough to say, and then that 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 what they that their needs weren't being met, and then. And- that- the at each of our reacted yeah at each of our levels the like metco director not being like the token black person to have that conversation but they came in and were willing to like run these classes with us and basically like we could ask the really hard questions and again it was awkward as all get up when we first started and like no one would talk and like all of that but it's again it's been it's been pretty good teaching tolerance is a terrible name for a great organization um, that has a ton of like resources. It started in the South. And so I think that's why they chose the title they chose not to get off topic, but, but teaching tolerance, they're working to change their name to be not tolerance, just like about yeah. being kind to everyone. But um, they have a ton of resources that are really awesome. And like most of their resources are free printable PDFs. And so like, we just had like handbooks all over our buildings that people could just read at leisure. Yeah, so. we were we were pretty lucky a few years ago. We had someone from um, in New Jersey. I think it's called Educators for Equality. Um, but we had a professional development day on um, mainly transgender, but within the LGBTQ like blanket of like things to be aware of and boys and girls that, that all that language came up and you know pronouns and what that might look like and you know so that was I was happy to see that that was something that like our school did. Um, And actually throughout this whole remote learning and then Black Lives Matter, we actually had a bunch of alumni who are now either graduating college or just graduated college. And they wrote into the superintendent and the town council asking for like more anti-racist education in our school. And so like I I sat in on a Zoom call. It was incredible to hear the way they spoke you know, and um, to see like what they were doing with their time and, uh, and they're like really like pushing our school, which is also very wealthy and predominantly white, like that we need to do a better job. And they like the way that they were able to speak to like the principal and the superintendent and, you know, advocate for this, like you can't not be on board about it, you know, like it was, it was so moving and empowering. And I, you know, I'm, glad I was on the call because I feel like I can almost help hold the school accountable because I heard them say to these kids that they're going to do things and so now like on the teacher end like I get to see it like are you actually going to do things so I, I do it's it's an interesting time right now and I think the most important thing is just being willing to have the conversations and be willing to listen and you know I think I, as teachers I feel like we always want to do what's right and like what's best and I think maybe unlearning what we think those things are is part of this whole thing. Like just because we've always done something or that it it can't be that bad or like all of those things, like, you know, and being able to self-reflect, I think it's, you know, super important and definitely uncomfortable, but you know, we got to do it. I think that this tangent actually answers your other question in some ways as well. Absolutely. Um, Um, It sounds like what we're saying in short to like what we think should happen is just not that they're simple solutions, it's just they boil down in a very neat way. Listen, be willing to be uncomfortable, (laughs) be willing to be involved, be willing to hold people accountable, be willing to unlearn things and relearn things. There is a fabulous quote by Maxine Green, if you would let me put it on the screen for a moment. 
um, you're going to let me because I'm in charge. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, that I think encapsulates this really, really well. And you can read, but I'm going to read it since this is an audio recording. A kind of homesickness accompanies such a response, even when the individual realizes that he or she is not literally alone but caught up in intersubjectivity. That is why so many people still turn eagerly towards the stable, the monolithic, the monological. We want a foothold in an era of collapsing hierarchies when the world is increasingly viewed as continuously changing, irreducibly various and multiply configurable. Um, it's that concept of wanting to cling to what we already know because it's so much more comfortable to do that than it is to really address the bubble that's being burst that we like what we're realizing that we're living in um and it also pairs nicely with a james baldwin quote that i'll just read to you instead of retake your screens again uh the obligation of anyone who thinks of himself as responsible is to examine society and to try to change it and to fight it at no matter what risk this is the only hope society has this is the only way societies change it's that idea that once you've become educated you realize like that bitter, the bitter taste of intellectualism. Um, and that once you know what's wrong, it, it hurts and it tastes bad, but it's the only way that things move forward. I, I just started reading a book that I can't actually talk about it too much because I'm only on like chapter three, um, but it's called White Fragility. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, <Yes>. okay. <laughs> you know the book. I do. Um, well, like I said, I am not that far into it, so I can't see I should have read more of it before this podcast um but even just from the beginning it basically it talks about why white people are, are so uncomfortable talking about race and how we just kind of you know people like us who are progressive and consider ourselves not racist still have kind of these you can't help having these racist underpinnings because it's what you've grown up with and if you grow up in a white society you just you have these preconceived notions and it's just it's very interesting to me because it it makes me realize like how many like you guys were talking about the uncomfortable conversations that have to be had but really you have to be comfortable with getting uncomfortable because like I wouldn't call myself a racist however of course there's things I have to come to terms with where it's like there's definitely deep-seated racism in all of us that we can't help it's not like you know not like in the KKK but just you can't help having some kind of racist underpinning and it's it's tricky to overcome that and make sure that your classroom is as open as possible. It's confirmation biased. You want yeah. to prove what you know. Yeah. And one thing I, though I do think it's important um, to be reading about anti-racism and all that, white fragility is also written by a white author. So I know. There, there is like a little bit of me that's like, I feel like I initially wanted to read that too, but then I was like, you know what, maybe, maybe that's part of the problem too. Like we need to also be reading from black authors, like, because I think having the view from a white person is still kind of wrong. And I, like, not wrong, but um, it's just interesting. Like when you think about it, that we should be learning from black people about it. Yeah. You know, I had that thought too, but I've also been hearing a lot like on some other not keep bringing up facebook because it seems like so stupid um but on some other facebook groups about how white people also are kind of like putting the the mental load onto black people to be the educators and i feel like white fragility um she does seem to be taking the the perspective of i'm very obviously a white person with biases this is like me as a white person talking about racism and how like you and she's like speaking basically to us like the white liberal um and saying like these are some like some things that you have to confront i definitely think i mean i've been reading a lot of like 
black authors as well. Um, but I don't know. I think it's a good book just because it's, I don't know, it's different having a white person saying to you, like, these are ways that we as white people can try to be less racist, even though taking into account the black perspective is also really important. I don't know. I think both perspectives are important. <laughs> I think you're right that we should not make them come up with the entirety of the answer because that is unfair to do. But we also obviously have to listen because they're the ones who are feeling the pressure in the first place. I think you're absolutely right. I think both of you are right. And to give a couple of uh, recommendations, Ta-Nehisi Coates' Eight Years in Power is a fantastic read um, from a, an author of color who has directly lived it. Um, this one happens to be sitting right next to me, so I can just show it. It's Jason Reynolds and Ibram X. Kendi, two authors of color called Stamped, racism, anti-racism, and you. <laughs> Any, Directly anything related to what you guys are talking about. Anything by Jason Reynolds. He is a uh, an author of color. If you looked at him, he looks like a Rastafarian. Um, he doesn't look like it. So he like won major library awards. And he gets up on stage and you're like, you wrote a book? Like, like that's literally like your first thought when you see him. And he admits openly his interviews are amazing. His podcasts are amazing. He openly admits that he had, he didn't read a book in its entirety until after he graduated from high school. Wow. His literature was Mary J. Blige, and his literature was, like, the music, the rap, and the poetry of the street. And that's how and why he writes in prose a lot for kids. He's amazing. He did a he Skyped in to our school. And cool. so our kids got to have a whole conversation with him after our, we did a whole school read aloud with his... Uh, tra his sports series, the track series. So we read that with our kids and he Skyped in. He's amazing. You guys, I think we did it. I think we solved education. We kind of got a little, a little on a non-music tangent, but it's a very I, valid one. But I think, I think that, I think that's fine. I think like music education does not exist in a bubble. Music education is education and music education is part of a larger system that like where we all kind of are de dealing with the same um struggles and i well, think it's i also think like the the vulnerability required of both us as musicians and the children as musicians like i think oh, i almost feel like sometimes we have more pressure to like be more aware of the social aspects of all of life because like i don't know about you guys but sometimes kids that are like problems or something in our school and i don't want to say problems in a, in a mean way but like they they aren't always like in my room like if somebody has you know me i feel like sometimes they they can be their true selves so, like, yes, we didn't talk about music as much as a subject itself, but I think being the people that we are sometimes is so important for our kids. And, like, I think going back in whatever capacity, I know my school right now is going back five days in person. Like, however, we're going back to school. <laughs> however, we're going yeah, back. As of this moment, so are we. But yeah, like, I, I, you know, like, understanding the emotional toll of all of it is so important for us before we even like talk about rhythm. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like I, um, so though it might not have been like solely music, I think. No, for sure. I think you're right that it is a little more relevant for us because I think was it Herbert Ancliffe who wrote like music is at once an art and a social science um, that it's impossible to take like the social aspects out of what we do on a daily basis. And so there is a lot of pressure on us to directly deal with some of these things more so than say they 
the, the like the direct uh, the direct things that are going on in the world, say with climate change and and things that science deals with, or the direct things that mathematics deals with, are not the direct things that we deal with. I think you're right that there's a lot of well, an extra responsibility that we should take up because of how related it is to us. Right. And the blessing and the curse of we don't have a state mandated curriculum. <laughs> we have the opportunity in our classroom to stop and listen to the kids that are in pain and hurting. <laughs> and have that conversation. And we chose a profession that requires us to have, like there's no way to, well, I shouldn't say no way, but performance is not as authentic or believable if there's a lack of emotion involved. So the, the sole fact that we're asking kids to emote and feel in what we're doing, I think opens the floor or requires that we have these conversations with kids in a place because it's not literal, it's not math where the answer is always the same and or exact. And so I think not having a curriculum controlled by the state, thank God, um, allows us to, in some ways, open the door for those conversations. And again, a lot of us, I don't want to speak for everybody, but a lot of the time, you know, musicians buy in because of one or two or a few emotional experiences that like was the moment that we can't explain to every, anybody else. We defend what we do using terms that other people understand. It creates teamwork. It does this. It does that. But really, the reason why we stuck it out and we do what we do as hard as it is, is because music makes you feel something and it's something you can't really explain and you want somebody else to feel that too. And so like with that comes, I think, an obligation almost to have a conversation with kids to let them get there. Unless anyone else has anything very pressing to say, I think that's a beautiful place to close. <laughs> I just want to say... um i i'm very intrigued by this conversation because i don't uh, i have a different worldview than everyone else here and um it's interesting to hear about some of these things this is not at all the conversation that i thought we would be having uh which is interesting to me i don't i don't teach rich white kids and um I, ha- I did one year, um, one year I taught in a, in a rich white district and, uh, but everything else has been, I, I taught in Chelsea and it was, um, the poorest of the poorest of the poor, um, 98% Hispanic. And now I teach in a, a community that's actually like diverse. And, uh, you know, I, I just think, um, I disagree, Emma, a little bit. It finally happened. 40-some minutes into the conversation, we finally heard the dissonance. Tune in next time to hear the rest of the discussion as we wrestle with the Discord on Welcome Dissonance.